0: You can open up your copy of the Bible uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 5, uh, here in just a few minutes. Um, but, so 2 Corinthians 2, 5, and we'll go through verse 11 this morning. I wanted to start by sharing a quote uh, from an ancient Chinese general named Sun Tzu. He wrote a famous work, or it's at least a compilation of his sayings. I'm not sure which, but called The Art of War. And there's many famous quotes in it, but one that gets often quoted is this, where he wrote, in thinking of military strategy, he wrote, Know your enemy and know yourself and you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. Know your enemy, know yourself, and you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. That quote often just gets condensed down to the first three words in English. Know your enemy. Uh, that gets trotted out attributed to him, rightfully so, over and over again. Know your enemy. And what he was trying to say is something that we know to be true in life. Is that when we have an opponent, when we have an adversary, when we have someone who's against us. Uh, it is helpful, it's even wise, it is necessary even, I would say, to try to know them try to know what their strategies are try to know how they're going about things how how they're going to attack us how they're going to come after us that will help us in competition it will help us in battle to know their tactics know their It's helpful to know our enemy. And we know this from the time we're very young when we're learning to play board games or video games. If we know the strategy of our little sister, the shortcut that she takes on a video game, or we know uh, in board games what tendencies they have, it helps us. When we're learning more complicated games like chess, you can imagine what ways are they going to move, what are are their kind of typical go-to strategies that they have as my opponent? We learn it if we play in athletics. Uh, There's reasons that coaches give out scouting reports from the other team, right, where you know the pitches that they throw or the plays that they run. You know what they're good at, what they're not. Uh, That's why in sports like baseball, they try to do things like sign stealing, like figure out what their signals are as a team so that if you know what their codes are that they use with each other, it's to your advantage as you play against them. We know it in business, if we can get a rival company's insights or private information and know how they operate, it helps us to know how to um, maybe improve ourselves or how to be a, a better rival competitor, maybe even superior to them. We see it true in war, like that's what Sun Tzu was talking about, that there's a reason in battle and in in war that there's intelligence agencies, right? There's spies that are sent out where if we can learn what their strategies are, if we can know where they're headed, we can know what they're doing, if we can crack their codes, if we can know their locations, it helps us to win the battle. It is helpful, it's imperative even to know your enemy to know what they're doing, to know their aims, to know their strategies. And in today's text, where we're going to come to in Second Corinthians, we're going to see that Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this church, and as we get to listen in, we're going to see him highlight the schemes, highlight the strategies of our ultimate enemy, of our spiritual enemy of Satan And we're going to become aware, and Paul's going to draw attention to Satan's tactics, his schemes, his strategies, and one specific area of church life, one that he gives a ton of attention to, Satan gives a ton of attention to, but sometimes we're oblivious, and we we don't even think about it at all, and it's the area of church discipline. It's not a popular subject, it's not one that we like to think about many times, but if Satan, our enemy, is giving much thought to it, if he's giving strategy and attention and scheming in relation to it, it'd be wise for us to learn about it as well and to think about it to make sure that if we engage in it, that we are doing uh, There's a lot at stake when it comes to this subject of church discipline. Satan loves to put energy into it because he knows it's an opportunity in the life of a church to divide people, to discourage people, to destroy churches, uh, to ruin even our gospel witness. He, he knows that there's immense opportunity for his sake in this subject of church discipline, and we'd be wise to know why and to give attention to it ourselves. And so I want to read this text for us, and then we'll walk back through it and learn about this subject, one that maybe you haven't given maybe any thought to before, or maybe a little bit. We'll learn together from the Apostle Paul about this subject of church discipline. We'll know our enemy a bit better, I think, by the end of it, but hopefully we know our Savior even better and we know how to follow him in this controversial subject. So Paul's writing to this church that he loves. There, he was the man, humanly speaking, who had started this church in the city of Corinth a few decades after Jesus had, had gone back into heaven. And he's writing this letter to this church. And what we're going to see in this text is he's going to speak to one particular case and one particular person even, uh, one specific person, uh, about sin that had been in his life. And we're going to see that this, I think, has relevance even for us today. This is not just something that's ancient, written long ago, and uh, who cares? It has a lot to do with even us today. So follow along with me. If you have a different translation, it might sound slightly different, but it, we should largely get the same uh, message together. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, then hear this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of God. I want to explain this text and the situation that was behind it and what Paul is saying and then walk back through it and think through its relevance for us even almost 2,000 years later now, halfway around the world. Uh, Paul is writing to this church and he, he had written to them. I'll say this first. There's a lot of backstory behind 2 Corinthians. Some that we do know, some that we don't know, some is speculative, some is guessing a little bit, but I think what I'm sharing you can see in today's text fairly accurately. But but this is what was going on. Earlier, uh, Paul, before he wrote 2 Corinthians, he had a year or so before, he had heard while he was away from Corinth, he had heard about some some sin that was happening in the life of this church. Not just like normal run-of-the-mill sin, but really flagrant unrepentant sin that was happening in this church, and we've already seen in this letter that that had prompted him to make what he called a painful visit to come to that church, to, to come unexpectedly, to spend time with them, even to address that sin that was going on in the life of the church, and we're not 100% sure what that was. There's some guesses that we can make based on the letter we call 1 Corinthians uh, about what might have prompted that visit, but we're not 100% sure. But what we can tell from today's text, and even later on in this letter, called second Corinthians is that when he had gone there to address that sin in the church and to help them deal with it there seems to be one particular person who had really caused the stink like one person when he was addressing sin there in the church who had had come like toe-to-toe almost with Paul and been very uh, disregarding of him disrespectful to him as an apostle uh, when he was there in person and that's what you get at when he says in chapter 2 verse 5 what we read today he's talking about someone who caused him pain Uh, he seems to be referring to this particular person that when he had visited had caused him pain and, and not receiving confrontation not listening to him and what had happened as we can piece together in today's text is when he then confronted this brother who was resisting him, who was publicly uh, resisting him. When, When Paul pressed in further on him, the church there at Corinth, sadly, most of them, or a lot of them at least, had sided with this sinful brother rather than Paul. So when Paul was addressing this guy, trying to address sin in his life, confront it, root it out of this man's life, the church had largely sided with that man instead of Paul. And so that then left Paul, he, he left the city of Corinth, he was frustrated, you can tell as he writes this letter a little later on, he was frustrated with what had taken place. And it prompted him, you see in verse 9 of today's text, That visit where that brother had resisted him, and then when he left, it had prompted him to write a letter that we don't have in the Bible. I've been calling it 1.5 Corinthians. Uh, It's this severe, he calls it a severe letter that he had sent back to the city of Corinth after he left, where he he references that in verse 9. He says, this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. And so what it seems like what he was doing was after he had left and this church had sided with that sinful brother, he still has hope and confidence that they will come around, that they will start to see this sin rightly, that they'll respond and actually address this brother and not just let him keep sinning and disregarding God. So he writes them this hard letter after he left and he calls them to really deal with this man to not just keep ignoring it not just let it slide but actually discipline this brother like that he cannot just live like that he can't defy me as an apostle he can't disregard Jesus that is not acceptable and so he writes in this letter to see that even if this church will obey him if they really will discipline this brother or if they're just going to continue to let it slide. And what seems, again, like it took place based on today's text is that that church finally did start disciplining that brother. That they, He even talks about how he they had punished him, right, in verse 6. We don't know exactly what that means, but he said he's talking about this punishment by the majority that had been taking place, that they had finally addressed this brother with church discipline. They had, had confronted him about it. It seems like they had probably, even based on Paul's instructions, had not let him come to worship with them, certainly had not, like, had communion with him, had not been relating to him as a fellow believer anymore, but had been putting him under discipline which is good that they obeyed it's good that they finally listened paul says even in chapter 7 of this letter which we'll see later that that hard letter he had written this is even more glorious it seems like that brother actually repented himself like when, when discipline had been applied to him, it, it seems that he had actually repented of that sin, of his disregard of Paul, of whatever sin had originally prompted their altercation. It seems like he had truly repented of it. And the reason I say that is because as Paul writes Second Corinthians now, even today's text, it's like he's telling this church that had finally started disciplining this guy. Now he's saying like, relent, like stop, like this brother has changed, like he, he has turned back to the Lord, the discipline worked, like what, what God wanted to see happen has actually happened, and Paul says that he's forgiven him in verse 10, right, he's talking about how I have forgiven him, and he's saying now you, back in verse 7, you all need to forgive him as well, he says to this church, you should rather turn now to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so uh, what he's saying now is church. He has repented. like He has turned back to the Lord. Now you need to relent of that discipline. Stop doing it. Like he, he's been restored to you. He's been restored to Jesus. Stop disciplining him. Let him worship with you. Receive him back as a brother. Love him. Affirm your love for him, he says. And then at the end of today's text, and this is why I brought up that quote from Sun Tzu at the beginning, he, Paul is indicating to this church and to us as readers of it that in this realm of church discipline and how we handle it with each other, he says, we, so we must not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. And what he's saying is that in this experience of church discipline, there is a strategy that Satan has. There, he, he has this, these efforts that when there's sin in the church and when we start to address it or maybe don't address it, there's strategy, there's purpose in what he's doing. He's trying to outwit us as the people of God. He has aims and designs. And I, I would say from today's text even that we can know what those are. He says, we are not ignorant of his designs. Like, we can be alert to them. We can know what they are. We can, not that we can know the exact mind of Satan or would even want to, but we can know what his aims are, what his tactics are when it comes to this experience of church discipline and how we engage in it as Christians. So, I want to point out some things from this text that, about who Satan is, or more importantly, like how he schemes against us in the realm of church discipline, so we can think about it ourselves. We can be ready when those times come where discipline is necessary in the life of the church. I want to make a couple comments about who Satan is first and then about his tactics, okay? A couple quick things about Satan because I, I think sometimes. We could not say this with sincerity that we're not ignorant of his designs. A lot of times we don't even, it's not even we're worried about his designs and his schemes. I think there's a lot of people, maybe even us in this room, who aren't even totally convinced Satan exists. Like Satan is real. He is very real. Uh, we, he is not some mythical being. He's not just some metaphor for evil. He is a real being who has a mind, who has intentions, who has aims. He is real. And Satan is angry. We used to, even if even if we are blessed to be united with Jesus now, which I, I hope and trust that most of us in this room are, if we've been united with Jesus by faith, do you know what used to be true of us? We used to be under his rule. We used to be under in part of the kingdom of Satan, under his dominion, under his rule, as we entered into this world. But Christ, praise God, as we just sang through several of our songs, has freed us from him, from his rule, from his dominion. But do you know what that means for him? We sometimes see like mad exes, like ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, uh, and we think that they're mad because the person left them. Think how mad Satan is. When millions, if not billions of people now in the course of history have been rescued, have been freed from under his rule, his dominion, how mad do you think that he is? How desperately does he want now to destroy the people who've been freed from him? He is real and he is angry and Satan is crafty. You read back in Genesis chapter 3, that's the word that's used to describe him even back in the Garden of Eden is that he is crafty. He is clever Satan is very purposeful in how he engages with us. He, he doesn't just kind of shoot random bullets like he aims his shots, right? Like he knows what he is doing. He is purposeful in how he tempts us. We have, at best in this room, there may be some of us who have 70 years, 80 years of experience of living as a human being, maybe 60, 70 of living as a Christian. Satan has thousands of years of tempting human beings. He is crafty, he is smart, he is deceptive. That's the last thing I'll say about him. Satan is deceptive. From the very beginning of time, Satan has been the deceiver. He's been the one who has been trying to bait human beings with sin and get us to think that it's good for us to disobey God. He deceives us into thinking of that. This letter, 2 Corinthians, we're going to see near the end of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. This very letter is where Paul makes the famous statement that we'll quote often where he says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Like Satan wants us to think that he's good. He, he wants to bait us with things and behaviors and actions that we think are good. Things that we think are righteous and, that, and leads us into doing those things. And he does his worst damage when he can convince us we're doing right. That we're honoring Jesus when we're actually defying him. That's when he does his most damage. That's when he does his, in his opinion, his best work. And church discipline, this area of, of church life, of addressing sin in the life of believers and seeking to live life of holiness, is one where Satan, this is what Paul says here, he tries to outwit us. He he has schemes against us, and he's often effective in it. He can convince us to not engage in it at all, to just be passive and to avoid it. Or if we do have the courage and willingness to enter into it, he can, he can convince us, he can tempt us to engage in it in ways that are damaging, that ways that wreak havoc upon each other and upon our witness for Jesus. And so I want to show you from this text a couple ways. I'm going to give you three strategies that I think are in the mind of Satan as he tries to uh, address us on this issue of church discipline. And I'll just tell you them up front and then we'll walk back through them. I think we see in today's text... One of his tactics is that he tempts us to turn a blind eye to sin. Second one is that he tempts us to turn a deaf ear to leaders. And the third one is that he tempts us to turn a cold shoulder to the repentant. I want to show you from the text each of these things to alert us to these things, to help us be ready uh, when we go through the experience of church discipline. Because every church does. If this ancient church did, and Paul's given directions to them, it's true for churches ongoingly, till Jesus returns, that this issue will come up. It has come up in our church. It will come up again, and we need to think about it and be biblical about how we operate in it. So the first temptation I think you can see in this experience of the Corinthian church and even today's text, is that he tempted them to turn a blind eye to sin. All of us are tempted to do this. Like Even the most godly of Christians, we are tempted to turn a blind eye to sin. Whether it's our own sin in our own life or the sins that we see in the life of other people, there's a temptation in us at times to turn a blind eye to it, to to ignore it, to just not pay attention to it. Uh, And I would note, as we're talking about church discipline, uh, I am talking about, and the Bible will speak about church discipline, in terms of unrepentant, persistent sin and how we address that in the life of, of fellow Christians. When there's obvious, definite sin in their life, they're clearly following, are not following the commands of Scripture, and they're not repenting of it. Even when confronted, even when addressed, they're not repenting of it. That's the type of sin I, I'm saying, that we're even tempted to turn a blind eye even toward that. There's a few reasons I think that Satan... He tempts, uh, or things he tempts us with to turn a blind eye towards sin. One would be he tempts us to downplay the seriousness of sin. If you listen to people talk today, if you even sometimes listen to yourself talk today, sometimes you rarely will hear the word sin. A lot of times when we do things that are wrong, we will talk about it even in church circles as making mistakes or slipping up or falling, things like that. And we use language like that, that that seeks to kind of minimize sin instead of seeing it as rebellion against our creator, as a defiance toward him. Like Sin is ugly. We, we tend to think of sin as deserving a little slap on the wrist instead of deserving the wrath of God. And when we, when we lower the seriousness of sin in our life, then we're tempted to turn a blind eye to it. To think, well, who cares if we address it? It's not that big of a deal. Another reason we turn a blind eye is that we make excuses for it. We tend to justify it. We try to find, think of reasons that person did that or, or what's the justification in my own life of the thing that I just did, that I know sin, but I, we always try to find an explanation for a cause of it other than a sinful heart. We think what's happened to this person or what did the person do to them or what was the situation that they're in or, and we try to explain things away and justify sin. Another reason we turn a blind eye is I would say I think we're afraid to address it we're fearful of what might happen if I speak into this or if we speak into this person's life. We're afraid of what might take place or we're embarrassed to let other people speak it to our own sin, our own life. We're, we're embarrassed, we're ashamed to, to let people know that we have sinned ourselves. And I think the last reason that we're tempted to turn a blind eye is that we tend to think of sin wrongfully. We tend to think of sin as just a private matter. That this is just something between me and God like, my sin doesn't affect other people. It certainly doesn't affect the church at large. It's none of other people's business. It doesn't bother them. Why should they care about my sin? Why should I care about their sin? And Satan can even twist it even more, our motives, and try to convince us that it's actually noble and Christ-honoring to turn a blind eye to sin. He can uh, twist things in our mind where we can say things like this. I've been tempted to say things like this, where we, we'll say things like this. We'll say, when we know a brother or sister is sinning and unrepentant, we'll say, "Well, like God doesn't hold that against them, so like why should we address it?" Or, "I'm not their judge; God's their judge," and it, it can sound very pious and noble. We could even say things like, well, like God doesn't need me. He doesn't need us to change this person. God's powerful enough. He's big enough to just do it himself. So let's just let him do his thing. Let's just pray for this person. Let him do his thing. And that sounds incredibly pious, doesn't it? To think, well, God can do it. He doesn't need us. But that is twist. That's Satan twisting us into justifying, a, a turning a blind eye to sin. And he can make us think it's noble, that it's honoring to Jesus. But sin is serious. Sin is damaging. Sin is not some just thing that we toy with, it is not trivial. It is serious, it is dangerous. And the good news of Jesus, it is a message of forgiveness. It is a message of being reconciled to God through the work of Jesus on the cross. Yes, it is a message of that. But when we are united with Jesus, do you know what else is true? What else comes with that gospel message is that he makes us into new people who are called to live lives of holiness. To not just keep living under Satan's dominion. To not just keep living as the old self, but to live a life of holiness that is set apart as individuals and as a collective church. And we are to help each other. Even you see in this text, we are to help each other pursue holiness. Not just to turn a blind eye to it, not just to ignore it, not just to to hope it goes away, but we're to address it in each other's life. We're to help each other to pursue lives of holiness. If we saw, Satan is often referred to as a serpent. Right? If we saw a serpent coiling around our friend, our loved one, uh, or a constrictor like coiling around their necks, like, we wouldn't just passively watch. Would we? we would take action. We, we would seek to kill that thing. We would seek to free them from it. And when we see sin, persistent unrepentant sin in the life of fellow believers, that's what we're seeing happen is Satan is coiling around slowly where they might not even realize it, coiling around that person ready to cut off their very life. And we must not turn a blind eye to sin. Satan will tempt us to. And when we do address sin, when, when, and I'll read Jesus' command about this in just a moment, when we do address sin in the life of a fellow believer in the church, and if they do not repent of it, There's this process that Jesus himself has given to us that increasingly seeks to bring that to light in a broader community and even under the oversight of leaders of a particular congregation over a group of people. And when it gets to that step in a process where it starts to need to be addressed by larger groups of people or even by a collective church, there's another temptation that Satan uses, another strategy that he uses with churches. And you see that happening in the church at Corinth, right? Paul had given them instruction back when he wrote 1 Corinthians, a couple years before this. He had given them some instructions. You could read it sometime if you want. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about how to do this process of church discipline, how to handle this brother at that time, at least, who had been unrepentant. He had even told them in that text uh, for those of us who like to, to quote Jesus, where he, he says, judge not, lest you be judged. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said we have a responsibility to judge each other inside the church. He said that God judges people outside the church. We, in the church, we help judge each other. We help each other to pursue holiness. And Paul had called them to do that. He had told them in writing in First Corinthians. He had told them when he came in person to address this brother who was unrepentant in his sin. He had given them direction. He had clearly told them how to handle this brother, how to address the sin in his life. But they were resistant to it, that they didn't listen to him, that they were not wanting to do what Paul was calling them to do. And we'd, there's a lot, like I said at the beginning, there's a lot that's mysterious about the the backstory. We're kind of hearing one side of a phone call with these letters. But in that church, we don't know exactly why they were resistant. We don't know what conversations they were having about Paul or what Paul had told them. But it's not hard for us to imagine, right, why they might have been reluctant to listen to what Paul was telling them. They could say things to Paul, uh, to Paul or about Paul when they're talking to each other like, Isn't that a little bit harsh, like, for us to to treat this guy as an unbeliever? Like, to not let him take communion with us? Like, doesn't that feel harsh, Paul? Like, that feels wrong. Or isn't this going to get, like, really awkward, like, with this brother's family or with his friends who are still part of this church? Like, isn't that going to be really awkward for us? Or they they might have said to Paul, like, we're all sinners, Paul. Like, you used to kill Christians. Like, why are you going to come and try to address sin in this guy's life? that they were tempted to resist him. They might have even had this kind of evangelistic bent where Satan would love to twist their thoughts even more to think it's noble to to not listen to Paul, or they could have thought things like, well, Paul, like... If we get a reputation here in Corinth as a group of people that addresses sin in somebody's life and like, doesn't let them worship and, and take communion with us if they're unrepentant, what's the unbelieving community going to think? Like Nobody's going to want to come join up with us if we're known as a church that like, takes sinfulness seriously. Nobody's going to want to be part of us. But an important thing that I think Paul probably pointed out to this church and that I would point out to us as a church is that Jesus is the one who gave commands about church discipline first, not Paul. Like, when they're resisting what Paul told them to do about church discipline, how to handle this brother and what the sin is life, it's not just Paul they're resisting, it's Jesus that they're resisting. He's the leader that they're not listening to, ultimately. In Matthew 18, Jesus gave very specific, clear commands about how to engage in the process of church discipline. He had said back in Matthew 18, he said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, this is glorious, this is the goal, you've gained a brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I don't have time to get into that text, but I just want to point out, Paul wasn't the one who came up with this process of church discipline. Jesus was. Jesus was the one who gave this command. So we can't just think, well, Paul was just kind of angry, upset. Jesus was not. Like Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew, he commanded us to do these things, to handle and address sin in people's life when it was unrepentant in a very particular way. And this is so critical for us to know that the one who died for our sins, the one who atoned for them that with his death on the cross, that we might be forgiven of those sins. That same Jesus gave us instruction about how to root out sin. Not how to just turn a blind eye to it. Not just to ignore, oh, it's forgiven, no big deal. He gave us commands about how to help root it out of our lives. How to root it out of the community of God's people. This was not the invention of some angry pastor. It was the invention of our Savior himself. It was the command of Jesus. And pastors have a unique responsibility in this process, I would say. You even see it in the fact that Paul went to this church to lead them in it. When, when Jesus talks about telling it to the church, I think there's a special responsibility that pastors have, and it's a weighty one, to walk through processes of church discipline and help guide the church in how they think about sin, how they think about that brother or sister, how they think about how to relate to them. And if we don't follow our pastors, as long as pastors like myself and our elders are following the commands of Scripture and the heart of Scripture If we resist that process that we seek to lead our church in, it's not just us that you're resisting. As hard as it is for me to say, it's Christ himself. And we don't get to just turn a deaf ear to our leaders. Satan loves that, doesn't he? That's what he's been doing from the beginning of time, is trying to get human beings to disregard the commands of the leaders in their life the spiritual truth tellers in their life started with God himself and then it continues on in the life of human beings he wants us to turn a deaf ear to our leaders and when we do when we turn a deaf ear to the leaders who are calling us to lovingly address this brother sister guess what happens the sin doesn't go away it spreads It gets further and deeper into the life of the congregation when we don't address sin and when we don't follow the leadership of pastors in the addressing of it. The last tactic of Satan that we can see even in today's text in this situation is that when we do finally address sin in the life of a brother or sister, we address them, we, we confront them, we even maybe enact discipline against them at increasing levels, When we come to that heartbreaking point, which our church has had to do at times of even excommunicating a person with tears in our eyes, releasing this brother or sister from membership even in our church, what Satan loves to do is that if that brother or sister actually does repent, if they actually do turn and come back to the Lord and come back to the life of righteousness, what Satan loves to do is attempt us to turn a cold shoulder to them still to turn a cold shoulder to people who are actually repentant. Like the people who church discipline, it's actually worked in their life now, and they're repenting. What Satan would love for us to do is to keep them at arm's length. He has said to gain a brother back. It's to see restoration. It's to see them, not to, to just glory in them being a part, but to see them come back into the fold, to see them come back into a place of repentance and trust in Christ. There are stories in our very church where this has happened. where it is happening even right now where this has taken place where people have genuinely come to a place of repentance because of this process and it's a beautiful thing it is a weighty thing but it is a beautiful thing when it works as it's supposed to and the corinthians had done this finally they had disciplined this brother they they had put him under discipline but now he's repented and paul is begging them he's saying that's uh, the punishment is enough verse six now he says verse 7 turn and forgive and comfort him or he'll be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow that is the response the same Paul who initiated the discipline is saying now enough receive him back like he's trusting in Christ he's he's repented of this sin he's forsaking it receive him back and Paul is is telling them he's following in the footsteps of Jesus Jesus had said in Luke 17 verse 3 Jesus had said if a brother sins rebuke him And if he repents, forgive him. That's what Jesus had said. And Paul is seeking to live that out. When a brother or sister truly repents, we're to forgive. We're to welcome them back. We're to receive them back into full participation in the community of God's people. But sometimes, like once a train gets moving, it's hard to stop, isn't it? There's this thing called inertia in our world. Once things have started moving, it's hard to stop them. And once they've stopped moving, it's hard to start it. Church discipline is kind of that way. Where once we've started it, we've mustered the courage and the heart to, to... enact discipline upon a person, sometimes our heart just wants to keep doing it because that's the status quo. We want to keep discipline, keep holding that person at arm's length. But if we refuse to forgive, if we refuse to welcome a brother or sister back in and we just turn that cold shoulder to them over and over and over again, several things are going to happen. That person, you can even see in verse 7, is going to be tempted to sorrow shamefulness. Feel like, man, these people don't even forgive me. Like, is this God that we say, that we worship, like, is he going to forgive me? Is he going to receive me in? Or is there love or lack thereof a sign of God's lack of love for me? The person can feel like they're wearing a scarlet letter that can never be removed. Can feel like they're, they're always going to be identified by their disobedience instead of their Repentance. It can lead, if we turn a cold shoulder to the repentant, it can lead in the church and the people who are turning that cold shoulder, it can lead to pride and arrogance. Where we're tempted to to use Jesus' language of a parable he told to, to point at that person and say, Thank you, God, I'm not like that person. Like, I've never fallen away from you. Like, we can be puffed up with pride and arrogance towards this person as if we are somehow superior to them. If we turn a cold shoulder to the repentant it can lead to fear in our church where if we imagine ourselves someday being that person we think man what if god forbid like i fall into a life of sin and like i go through a season of rebellion but then i truly turn back to the lord are they going to just shun me are they going to keep me and it can lead to a fear where we're afraid to even acknowledge sin in our life where we're afraid to even let people know about it because we fear what they're going to think we fear how they're going to respond to me. And I would say, if you want to talk about evangelistic effort, this can be a terrible witness to the community. Like if there is a brother or sister who has sinned in grievous ways and we've enacted discipline upon them and now they're repentant and longing to, to be with us again and they've turned their life in that area over to Christ again and we say no, what is that showing to the world? Like what is that showing to the people we're telling about this Jesus who's died for them and who can forgive them if we say we're not even willing to forgive this brother or sister who's repenting? Church discipline, when we enact it, it provides us a chance not to judge and to condemn, but a chance to forgive chance to restore. That's the heart of the gospel, right? Is that those who have sinned, those who are enemies, when we repent and when we trust in Christ, we're brought near to God. We're reconciled to Him. We're restored to fellowship with Him. And our culture right now loves canceling people, doesn't it? Like we love it. Like the world revels in it. Like seeing somebody who sins in whatever category they think is sin, and sticking it to that person, and saying you're marked by that now and forever, you have no part in us anymore. That is the message that the world loves to hear right now, and the church can slip into it just the same. But it feels righteous to us sometimes. To say, you sin, like you've been disobedient, you've been destructive towards the cause of Christ. Cancelled. You are done with us forever. That is not the gospel. The gospel is a message when we repent, when we place our trust in Christ, God forgives us. Like we cannot withhold forgiveness from others. That is not our prerogative. Jesus says if we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It is not optional for us. Like we don't cancel repentant people. God forgives repentant people and we are called to repent as well. the very one who could crush us, who could cancel us, do you know what he did for us? He was crushed for us. he, He was put to death on a cross on our behalf so that we could be brought back, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, but because he died for us and he forgives us and he receives us back into the fold. That is the type of message that we're to live out and that we're to extend even to brothers and sisters who've wronged us. Paul says, I've forgiven this, brother. Even when people wrong us, when they turn to Christ for forgiveness, we are called to forgive and to receive them back. And Satan will smile, he will gloat if we do not. In closing, I wanted to share something my little four-year-old son said last week. Uh, He said, and then we're gonna sing one more song. Uh, He has been learning the song by a City alike called Jesus Strong and Kind. Some of you probably know this song. If not, you should listen to it. It's a good song. Uh, but the name is the chorus, Jesus Strong and Kind. And my son was talking to me one day, and he said something that just kind of made me stop in my tracks for a second. Uh, it was one of those things where a little kid says something like, that's much deeper than what you realize that it is. And he, we were talking, I was sitting across, Satan, he's strong but he not kind. That's what he said. I was like, whoa, like what did you say? And he said it again. He said, Satan is strong, but he not kind. And I thought, man, that is so right. Like he is. Like he is strong. He is crafty. He's deceitful. And he loves to divide us. He loves to distance us from Jesus himself and disobey him. But he loves to see us divided as we address that sin in each other's lives, doesn't he? He is strong. He's manipulative towards us. He is not kind anything but. He's looking to destroy and to divide us. But Jesus is strong. He's infinitely stronger than Satan. He's his creator. He's his destroyer. And Jesus is kind. Jesus is forgiving. Even as he addresses sin in our life, when we repent, he receives us back. And that's what we're to do as well. Amen. I'm going to invite you all to stand. We're going to uh, sing a closing song here in just a second uh, called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Sometimes as a church we sing a a version of that called Victorious. We're actually going to sing the original version of Mighty Fortress uh, which addresses uh, who Satan is and his tactics but reminds us there's one who's greater, Jesus. So let's pray and we'll sing this song and I'll leave you with the word of benediction. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we are, are not just left under the, the uh, dominion of Satan. The one who wants to destroy us, who wants to control us, who wants to distract us, deceive us. We are grateful that we can and many of us in this room have been transferred from his kingdom into the kingdom of your son, the one who is strong and kind. God, we pray for your help as we address sin in our own lives and the lives of others even in the days ahead as we inevitably have to walk through processes of church discipline. We pray that we would do so in ways that are obedient to Christ and his commands, in ways that are honoring to you, Father, ways that are sensitive to the working of your spirit. And we pray that you would use this very process that can be so painful. We pray that you would use it for your intent, that you would use it to bring brothers and sisters back just as you have brought us back. And we pray this in the name of Christ.